Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to a quiet place to... No, wait, sorry, let me just check my notes here a second. That was wrong, sorry, my mistake. This one is dedicated to the 25th series in the Bond franchise. No, 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 that's gone south as well. This one is dedicated to... Pixar's Onward? Sure. Hooray! Yeah. Because this one's out. Yeah. This one is out in cinemas <laughs> and the corona can't fuck with that. Uh, yes, indeed. We are going to be talking about the latest slice of Pixar magic and uh, to do so over the next hour or so, uh, including the interview, I am joined by the man who branded this a latest slice of Pixar magic in Empire Magazine, no less, giving this five stars. It is, of course... Benjamin Travis, how are you, sir? Hello, I'm good. I'm good. It's lovely to be able to talk about this. I'm looking forward to it. I, as you probably know, loved the film. I thought it was amazing, and it was just full of so many delightful things. I'm happy to wonderful get to dig into it. Many, many wonderful, delightful things. Speaking of wonderful, delightful things, we are also joined by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Wow, that is the nicest intro you've ever given. Sorry, me. I've been using the wrong notes again. <laughs> that was that was meant to be for the no time. For John, yeah, that it? was meant to be for John. No, for the no time to die spoiler special. Uh, Unstoppable alien beast. No, that's from the Quiet Place. Um, oh well, that'll, that'll do. Helen, welcome. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a Pixar podcast, Helen. Sorry, How sorry. How dare you? Fudge you. Fudge you. Much better. Uh, it's John motherfucking Nugent, everybody. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> He's in the house. Hello. How are you? I'm... I'm okay. Good. <laughs> if you touched anything, Does, you okay? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fully disinfected. Okay. Uh, but anyway, before you hear from us talking about the this latest slice of Pixar Magic TM, uh, let's hear from the people who made it. Uh, director Dan Scanlon and producer Corey Ray uh, for It Is Lay. And they were talking to Ben for It Is He about the film for It Is That. And there's a lot of great spoilers talk in this one as well. Because it's the sort, of, sort of film you think initially Pixar film is not going to be a lot of stuff to get into, but there's a lot to get into in this film. And here we are. Ben, getting into it with Dan and Corey. Enjoy. Okay, so welcome to the uh, spoiler special for Onward, director Dan Scanlon and producer Corey Ray. How are you guys doing? <laughs> doing great. Very good. Yeah. Good, good. Um, yeah, this is your chance for, for spoiler therapy. Talk about all the things that you haven't been able to uh, on this film, which I absolutely loved. It was such a fun adventure story. So much sort of beautiful emotion in there as well. Um, so on that front, I'm going to start with uh, the big death. <laughs> in this film and it's probably not the one you're thinking of but it's the one that weirdly hit me in a big way about two thirds of the way through onward uh, we have to wave a sad farewell to Guinevere the loyal steed uh, and that sequence is it sort of encapsulates the film for me because it's it's funny there's humour to it there's visual gags but it is a weirdly like sad goodbye to this uh, this van that we've spent <laughs> about an hour and a half of the film with at that point so um, was Guinevere always fated to go how did that come about? Yeah, you know, uh, Guinevere didn't come till a little later. We we used to have the boys walking on their journey the whole way because it's a right. quest. Yeah, and then we thought, well, this is a modern fantasy world, so uh, we should have a we should have a, a, a van because you can't have a van in mm -hmm. any other movie. So she joined the movie as uh, more for entertainment reasons. Right, right. And then as time went on, we uh, she got a deeper role, which was. Barley has made many sacrifices for Ian, but we've never really seen one, and we wanted to see a big one. Mm -hmm. um, so we worked backward and created an arc for her. We made sure that, you know, 
as a sort of a joke up front, Barley says that the main thing he wants to do is show dad his van because it's something he made and is mm-hmm. proud of. Um, and uh, uh, we even set it up that, you know, uh, Ian doesn't really like the van. <laughs> they have their own little arc where mm-hmm. Ian starts to get more comfortable with her when he has to drive with her. And um, But we, we treated her like a character the whole time. And uh, she has a voice uh, when she's driving. You can hear her winning. Um, but it was all worked uh, backward to see Barley make a sacrifice of something that he truly loved um, uh, for that moment to play. Yeah. And it feels like part of the, the payoff for that, obviously, is then um, at the end of the film, when they when they do get a chance to reconnect with their dad, actually, it's it's Barley who reconnects and, and Ian lets him have that moment. Can you talk a little bit about that choice? I thought it was a really surprising but kind of beautiful choice that obviously then plays off Ian realizing that everything he needed actually he had from his brother all along. Can you talk a little bit about coming to that decision? Yeah, I mean, it was it, that that part was there kind of from the beginning, if you want to talk about. Yeah, um, we um, in the very beginnings of this movie, uh, I would meet with Corey and I and uh, Meg LaFoe, who wrote uh, Good Dinosaur and Inside Out. And while she was writing pretty much both those movies at the same time, she would give up her lunch hours to talk to us in our earliest stages because yeah. she's amazing and she would just talk we would talk about my life and she would uh, help me find the story within my story and I was telling her um, how my brother was so supportive of me he would uh, he would you know put pictures of mine that I'd drawn on his wall and he would uh, when he was in college and he had a new girlfriend he'd show her all the movies I made as a kid I mean he was <laughs> he was so incredibly supportive and I had been telling her that and she started to ask me you know what is it like not knowing your father and 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 how much do you miss him and why and I said to be honest with you I don't miss him and and it was kind of hard to say and I said I don't know why I don't miss him but I don't I, I don't remember him so so why would I miss him and Meg said the reason you don't miss your father is your dad or your brother was your father and my heart exploded and I <laughs> fell apart yeah uh, but it was we all cried it was what the movie was it was mm-hmm. that moment where I realized okay this is the story so from the very beginning we knew that's the point of the movie mm-hmm. uh, which I hope other people who don't have my exact situation can say there's somebody in your life who went above and beyond. There's somebody who was a little more supportive than they needed to be, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 yeah, that that was really and who sacrificed in that way. You know what I mean? Who sacrificed maybe a part of their own childhood or a part of their own growth for you mm-hmm. um, in 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 that support. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I thought that was lovely. And even so, um, even though it's uh, Barley who gets the, the big reunion at the end, there are all these beautiful moments all the way through of, of Ian sort of starting to connect with his dad or half of his dad, at least. I loved that image of um, of the feet touching, the idea of communicating through the feet. Um, how long into the process of the film did you come up with the like half a dad idea and then also a way to still bring that emotion through a character who's only <laughs> half there, who can't speak. Um, uh, how, how did that all come through? Yeah, I mean, it, it was fairly early on. We, we did start out thinking maybe they go on the quest and kind of at each juncture, they get a little 
another piece of him. And right. so that you would start with just shoes and then they would go, you know, have another encounter or adventure and we get a little more of them. And then we kind of just landed on that seemed a little bit episodic mm-hmm. and we didn't want to go there. And so then we kind of just landed on on the half pants, which is really just getting a, a, a part of him, a, a piece of him and and kind of showing that that even that was was important and mm-hmm. and was it wasn't necessarily enough, but it kind of was for Ian. Because our early versions of the story, they were just it was a world of human beings. Yeah. And dad had been a, a scientist who was trying to build a machine to communicate with the dead or, or somehow bring back the dead. And uh, Ian and Barley were scientists who were trying to prove that their dad's machine worked and also meet him. And that's why they were bringing back like a piece at a time. They had to collect yeah. objects. And yeah, it, it was very, um, it was kind of cold and clinical and not mm-hmm. quite as romanticized. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that's how we got to the half pants. Yeah. <laughs> to and, the magic. And so when did you then think of all the different things that you could to, could do with the half pants? Because obviously, yeah, you have the touching feet and you have, I love that dance number as well, where it's kind of, it starts off like a goofy thing, but it becomes really beautiful, actually, that they both get to sort of dance with their dad in a way. Yeah. We made the story team, got together, we had gag sessions, and we thought of what are all the things you could do if you were legs or not do. And one of the fun things about making an original movie is you don't really know your tone yet. So like anything goes. We had them in a boat where they had dad's legs out the back and dad's legs were kicking like a paddle, like a, like a speedboat. And you're like, sure, maybe this is that kind of movie. And um, uh, everything we could think of, the dancing came out of that, which mm-hmm. was just, you know, at first it was, that's a fun visual animation thing to do. Mm-hmm. But then the reason we got excited about it was the boys have put the dad on a pedestal their whole life. He's precious, he's sacred. And then, but that's not what parents are like. When you're a kid, you make fun of them, you're embarrassed by them, you goof on them. So the idea that the boys who would get to see him a little disgraced and realize, oh wow, he is a terrible dancer, it just felt like two two uh, siblings at a wedding watching their their dad dance. You know, it's such a bonding moment. Mm-hmm. And then, so let's talk about the the Dungeons and Dragons of it all, uh, the sort of magical quest side of things. I am not a massive D&D person, so uh, a lot of this, wh- what about you guys? What was your knowledge that you brought to this? And um, where where were you looking for, for inspiration for the things to kind of pinch from, from that world of swords and sorcery and, and all of that? Right. Uh, admittedly, we were not that into it. I, mm. I didn't know that much about Dungeons and Dragons. I kind of, I missed that a little bit. I might be a little too old. Um, and uh, but we definitely have um, a ton of people at Pixar who are super into it and uh, we were able to kind of really pull people onto the team who loved it and and were so excited to kind of delve into that world and offer all the knowledge they had Mm -hmm. and it was amazing we sat through a couple of Campaigns, if that's the right mm-hmm. word, um, and I, I absolutely kind of grew fond of of that, and and realized how how incredibly challenging and and interesting it is mm-hmm. to kind of do that type of storytelling, and um, so we we had a blast once we got into it, and I I learned a ton. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I am a total <laughs> geek for other things. Yes, that just wasn't one of them. That that. Uh, but I knew people who were yeah. and uh, loved those uh, those friends, and so it felt like the again, a, much like using Guinevere instead of walking. We thought this is a 
modern fantasy world, we got to use modern stuff. Mm. And w- you said you did a, a D&D campaign. As far uh-huh. as I understand that part of that, did you get to create your own character? Who, who, what were your roles <laughs> when you did D&D? We had a dungeon master, Mark Andrews, who is the director of Brave. Mm. Yeah. And Mark is serious, serious dungeon master. He's yeah. amazing. And so yeah. he... He, he set it all up for us. He did. He stepped us through it, helped yeah. us uh, figure out how it all worked. But um, I actually don't remember what my character was. Like, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was early days. Yeah. Something I believe comes from D&D is the gelatinous cube. I love the gelatinous <laughs> cube. That was great. Was that something that the, the guys at Pixar who were sort of big D&D nerds were like, you've got to st- try and stick this in the movie. Where, where did that come from? Yeah. I think they kept tr- they kept putting it in various <laughs> scenes. Well, as we were learning, you know, we we wanted the movie to be uh, at least start off with layman stuff. Like mm-hmm. everyone knows yeah. what a unicorn is and knows what an elf is. Uh, because we were going to be making jokes on them and t- a twist on them, we didn't want to get so deep in the 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 cuts. Uh, right. But we did want some of that. And so as we would sit and talk to people, I remember being in a meeting and someone saying. Uh, yeah, maybe it's like a manticore. And I thought, what in the world is a manticore? That is the funniest name I've ever heard. And then when they told me, I was like, that is so many things jammed into one. And there's an awkwardness to a lot of fantasy characters mm. that I think is really funny and fun. And the gelatinous cube then got brought up. And I'm like, that is a hilarious name. Uh, we would love to have that in the movie. And it, it felt like something that was not a very deep cut for 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 people who are fans but mm-hmm. it was a little something special was there already like a visual representation of what the gelatinous cube was or did you just have that phrase and you had to go through various <laughs> iterations of like what is this gelatinous cube what color is it what, <laughs> how big is it how how does it work there's not a lot of reference <laughs> or research that has to be done no to- Design your own gelatinous cube. It's true. But it did take us a while to come up with, like, you know, where it would actually present itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And we had many variations um, of kind of those end scenes or the gauntlet scenes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but we're, we're just, I love how it turned out. And they um, made at Pixar, they made different uh, jello oh, yeah. molds to find the right density and opacity, and they put milk in some of them to Ooh. make it a little a little thicker. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. So they made yeah. actual jelly yeah. and yes. then used that as a reference? Yes. yes. That is amazing. Absolutely. Not only in art to kind of see, check the color and, and make sure, but then all the way through to effects where mm-hmm. they had to see how things disintegrate inside of it. So it got passed on. There was, there was some old jello. Hanging around with the studio. Did, did you eat a lot of jelly during the making of the film? No. We ate lots of Cheetos and, and cheese puffs because for the same yeah. reason we had to get those out and look at those up close and what would they look like if they were big. and Serious meetings with adults yeah. around a bunch of various types of Cheetos and cheese puffs mm-hmm. figuring out, talking very seriously about exactly what is the right one and, and to use in the film. So. Amazing. I'm that's, sure that's a, where we love our job. I'm sure there's an office in Pixar somewhere covered in <laughs> Cheeto dust. And yeah, you can't get rid of it. Oh. And uh, the, the, one of the things I love about the the sequence with the gelatinous cube, it feels that there are loads of lovely nods to the um, Indiana Jones films. There, all of the the sort of portions that fall out of the floor is very um, Last Crusade. You've got the spikes yeah. coming out of the walls. Feels very um, Raiders, and even the gelatinous cube coming behind them feels almost like the room closing in in, in Temple of 
doom. Right. Um, so uh, was that a big reference for you? Uh, the sort of uh, that classic adventure, action adventure? Yeah, maybe not as intentionally as we originally <laughs> yeah. thought. I think uh, it's, I'd like to say it's an homage. Mm. Obviously, we grew up with those movies and they're so great. Uh, but we really just wanted to get that that yeah that dungeon feel that give people a little bit of the promise of a dungeon crawl of some sort exactly and yeah did you look at any other sort of classic adventure films or of that sort of not necessarily Tomb Raider but raiding tombs and, and heading underground even obviously Lord of the Rings as well you've got all the Mines of Moria stuff that is going sort of deep down into the earth and finding something weird and scary we looked at uh fantasy films and 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 games and and uh, uh well more books yeah uh than games necessarily but trying to find something that wasn't too recognizable but felt like oh this is a trope that we know and here's a slight twist on it i, I mentioned lord of the rings there one of my favorite background gags i mean that's the thing with these pixar films you've got to be constantly looking in the background as well because there are great gags everywhere uh, i loved that there was a dessert parlor called master froyo <laughs> really made me laugh i noticed as well uh, towards the beginning you've got the um centaur arcade arcade game prance prance revolution uh, what are your favorite background gags what are the little things that, that make you laugh uh yeah i love uh there's there's a, a hair salon called sir snips a lot which uh <laughs> i just think is funny <laughs> it doesn't pull from anything specific but it's just funny i like the the sword and the scone is a like right. a bakery <laughs> Yeah, is it you yeah. guys who spend hours coming up with those puns, or is that a mass sort of effort from the Pixar team at large? Yeah, the story team just went crazy, and there's a couple specific people who just that that's their that's their their thing that they yeah. they love. Austin Madison and Kelsey Mann, uh, they just love to come up with with those types of things. Yeah, I'm sure there's a bunch of people in the Empire office who would more than be happy to join <laughs> that team of just coming up with terrible puns all day. Uh, terrible in the in the good sense, obviously. In the quest storyline. Uh, uh, again, another surprise is that they, they end up back at the school. When did it sort of come about in, in working out the plot and where the adventure takes them, that it takes them back to the school at uh, New Mushroomton? For the longest time, they were trying to find a phoenix feather right. that was part of an actual phoenix bird. Mm -hmm. And they were going to have to battle it and, and kill it. And, um, and then it would come back to life uh, in the same way that the dragon monster comes back to life and therefore the boys would have to make a choice. Um, there was a couple of problems with it. One is uh, a phoenix isn't really a evil creature in any of these games. They're pretty mm -hmm. benevolent and wonderful. And I certainly didn't want to see our main characters killing a living thing. <laughs> and it also, suddenly it became a, just a full-on real fantasy movie. They were in a lair somewhere. There was a monster. Yeah. There was nothing that told you you were in the movie you were promised, which mm -hmm. was a modern fantasy world. So we said, is there any way we can have something modern come to life that is a essentially a golem of sorts that's not a living creature that they can slay that doesn't, you know, we don't feel bad about. And uh, one of the story artists, uh, Adam Campbell, said, yes, but I wish this fan I wish this moment took place back home. I just wish that we could finish the battle in uh, that setting, the, the full on act one setting we saw. We loved it, I that idea and had no idea how or why that could work or how or why we could do it. And it's one of those moments where entertainment leads story because then we thought, well, well, wow, if they accidentally ended up back home because of Barley and because Ian listened to Barley, 
followed his gut, did all the barley lessons and realized, oh my God, I never should have done it. I got seduced into believing in my brother and now I'm gonna get punished. Mm. We loved that, that felt like, oh, totally. this, is, this is what this story uh, should be. Yeah. So you mentioned there that there was going to be about a hunt for a phoenix. Is that then where the phoenix gem came from? Where, at mm-hmm. what point in the process did that sort of uh, change? It did, yeah. Place? We just switched the phoenix gem to be a phoenix feather. Exactly. <laughs> the other way around. The other way around. The feather mm-hmm. to become a gem that they needed to, to cast the spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it would still have been something that sort of slots into the top of the, uh, of the wizard staff. Was the wizard staff always part of that magic as well? Yeah. I think it was, yeah, for a long time. Yeah, the wizard staff long ago was just to have something that um, represented Ian's interest. Mm-hmm. We used to have a, a an idea that the long ago, Ian was the one who was interested in magic from the very beginning, and Barley was sort of indifferent. And Ian couldn't get magic to work, and he desperately wanted it to, and then Dad came along and created a way that he could do it. Um, and Ian had this very special staff, and he had practiced his whole life to do magic, and we wanted to show, we just wanted to show that uh, the staff had broken at one point because Ian worked so hard and that Barley had taped it up. Mm-hmm. And it used to be that instead of the list that Ian makes, he looked at his staff and saw all the little tape that Barley had put on it over the years. Before that, there was no staff. We just needed a physical way to show that Barley supported his interest. And it's an example of how that's the only reason the staff was in the movie. That idea was jettisoned completely. Mm-hmm. But we kept the staff just because it was then became a thing that dad could hand down. I mean, some, sometimes sometimes things just stay and find new reasons to be in the movie. To, to go back to then, uh, towards the end of the uh, quest when they're, they're at the school, one of the things I love is that throughout the course of the film, um, Laurel, Ian and Barley's mum, gets a sort of a, a real adventure quest of her own and she teams up with Corey. That whole um, sort of subplot it feels really, really beautifully thought through. And uh, so, yeah, was it always the case that as part of that big action finale, you're going to have um, Laurel going full action hero with, with Curse Crusher? Uh, was that always the plan with that character? I mean, I, I think... Not from the very beginning. We knew we wanted her to be a part of it. It just took us a while to figure out how to do it. And once we figured out how to kind of pair her up with the manticore, um, which in and of itself took a while to get to, then we were off to the races and kind of knew that we could have this kind of side quest going on with the two of them, all in favor of, of what seemingly was mom trying to protect her boys, and then in the end was really helping them um, finish up the quest to, to meet their father. So I think we always wanted her to be a part of it, but it did take us a while to figure out how. Mm. So um, To your point about protecting the boys, yeah. we really had her trying to stop them. Yes, mm-hmm. She was saying right. it's dangerous, uh, it's not worth them getting hurt to meet their father. Uh, and that just wasn't, a, that felt like, well, I don't want her to succeed in that. Yeah. And it didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like like my mom who would have, who, you know, it was always the three of us versus the world. And mm. and so to see, once we switched to Laurel saying, no, I'm, I'm going to help them, it, it made a huge difference. It did, yeah. It unlocked a lot of things. Because with that character as well, there is there is no hesitation, there is no fretting. She just finds out that they're on this quest and she is off. Um, I love the sort of directness of that character. And and the, the fact that her entering the fray at the end obviously is a lovely payoff. I think her first line in the film is the, I am a mighty warrior uh, in front of the TV. So yeah, um, yeah it, it just feels really beautifully threaded through the, the whole thing. So something, I don't want to dwell on it too much because I think it, it's really handled 
in a great way in the film that it is not made a huge deal of. But obviously, you've got um, Officer Spectre, the character uh, voiced by Lena Waithe, who um, has a wife. And I think this is maybe the first out LGBT character in a Pixar film. Um, I just wanted to talk about the genesis of that a little bit, because obviously uh, we love Lena Waithe. She's a, an amazing uh, well, screenwriter and actor and, and presence. Um, where did that decision come from? Was, it, was she always involved in the film and in that character? Did she help shape that character with you? How did that work? She, uh, you know, we got Lena involved to, to play the role. And it, like you said, she's a writer and she... One of the things I loved was when I first talked to her, she said, um, I want to do whatever I can to help um, um, to help this character support her part in the movie. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, that's such a wonderful thing to hear. Because some people want to take the ball and run. Mm-hmm. And I thought, only a writer would say that. <laughs> uh, and then when she showed up, she had all these great ideas. And it just it spur of the moment improv. Improvs and and um, uh, but the the character is a, is very important because we we worked hard to make this world feel real and we want it mm-hmm. to be like our real world and have mm-hmm. all the diversity and, and 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 you know representation that is in the world and that was what was important to all of us exactly yeah it came about kind of quite naturally and um, and she just did a she did a phenomenal job one thing that the film does uh, that I really liked. Uh, in part of the coming of age thread you've got the sheer terror of the first time you merge into traffic on a dual carriageway um, so which of you has that trauma that that trauma of having to veer out into the road because uh, I, I love that that sort of threaded through it's one of the weirdest things that is also true from my life story mm-hmm. in the movie is I'm terrified to drive I didn't drive till I was 17 and then once I moved to San Francisco I stopped mm-hmm. um, and uh, it just so happened that that worked out in Ian's character of being someone who lacks confidence and, um, and and was a lesson that he could learn. But, oh, my gosh, I totally relate to, to Ian in every way, um, you know, and the fear of that. And, and that pays off nicely. You've got the, um, the freeway chase, which um, I feel like something that, that Pixar doesn't always do that often is like a full-on frenetic action sequence. What was it like putting that scene together and and sort of getting that into the plot? And did you look at other, there are sort of classic uh, freeway chase scenes, you think of, I don't know, things like The Matrix Reloaded. What, what action sequences did you look at in uh, putting that together? One thing I love about that scene is um, it, it, it wasn't something that our team or me would naturally go to. We're not big action people. Um, w- w- I think in the room, I tend to encourage getting laughs from the rest of the story team when you pitch your scene and story artists pitch their own scenes based on the pages we write. Uh, they draw them up and then and then show them to everyone. And uh, an emotion, uh, if you can get people crying in the room. And uh, and it occurred to me that like as, a, as the person running the movie, I need to... I need to make people want to also scare their fellow story artists with with something <laughs> exciting. Mm-hmm. And I worked with uh, Maddie Shrafian, who boarded that scene, and she um, she was also all comedy, all all drama, emotion, and she wanted to challenge herself. And she and Austin yeah. boarded the scene, and and I said like, make sure you scare the team. Use that. Don't go for comedy. Don't under. Don't don't take away the the fear in this moment and she did a phenomenal job and then our layout department um uh, run by adam habib uh he and his team 
probably looked at endless car chases, I would imagine. They do a lot of research. And then it was really a process of uh, that along with our editor, Catherine Apple, and then Kelsey Mann and I going back over and restaging things. It, it's something I never thought we would do, um, but uh, it was a total joy to get to make this crazy, wild car chase that, uh, that I think is really fun. and. Throwing. Yeah, and it kicks off that 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 rest of the movie in mm-hmm. in that way. It just, um, but yeah, Adam Adam and the the camera team, I think once they heard about that scene, they were so psyched. Yeah, um, because they hadn't really done um, an action scene mm-hmm. like that. And and just to wrap things up, um, so. I wonder if this ties into that. I wanted to ask about there are always nods to other Pixar films in Pixar films. Can you can you point any out? Was there a, a Pizza Planet car in that chase sequence somewhere? The pe- yeah. Not in that one. The Pizza right. Planet truck was actually in a previous scene um, when the boys go through the toll plaza or the toll uh, the mm-hmm. troll plaza. And um, <laughs> another strong and, pun there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, in the background is Pizza Realm. Mm-hmm. Um, with uh, the same the same truck, mm-hmm. um, and one spoiler that I guess we can say now yeah. um, is the sole uh, uh, nod, which is to the next film right. in uh, in the uh, which is a film about uh, jazz and a jazz performer, and there's a performer in the movie named Dorothea Williams, and uh, you know our movie doesn't have any human beings in it, so we thought, how are we going to get a nod in there? And so early on in Act One, when Barley is racing over to clean up his game that Colt Bronco has knocked over, you can see the light feet, light foots, <laughs> light feet um, family have a bunch of albums, and the top album is a Dorothea Williams album. And I was like, oh, that's a good place to put it in there. Amazing, yeah. amazing. And uh, I can't wait to see Soul as well. That looks yeah. incredible. And um, yeah, you guys it did is. an amazing job with Onward. So thank you so much. And thank you for, for talking to us on the Spoiler Special. It's been oh. lovely. Oh, this thank was so cathartic. This was wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so amazing. much. Thank you so much, guys. Cheers. Okay, so that was Dan Scanlon, who previously directed Monsters University, didn't yeah, he? he did. That was his other sort of Pixar directorial film. Uh, he's been there for a few years, but um, yeah, those are his two that he's properly helmed. Huh. Yes, indeed. And uh, let's start with this film and how, how we feel about it in general. Five stars, you said. Five stars. I, it's and Look, if you, if you go back and read the review, I think there's a, a thing with uh, Pixar have outdone themselves so many times and done things that are so incredibly special, like, like Inside Out, like the opening half hour, 45 minutes of Wall-E. And for me, this isn't on that level, but it is on the level of, you know, all the other stuff that you love from Pixar. Not quite Monsters, Inc. level, but it's up there. It's up there with those classics. For me, it's it's kind of better than quite a lot of their recent output. Um, You look at sort of Incredibles 2 and Toy Story 4, which are films I really enjoyed. I had a great time with them, but there was something about this that I was just absolutely glowing by the time that it it ended. So... First of all, are we all roughly on the same page with with Ben here, or where do we stand on this movie? I mean, like we don't stand on it, Chris. That would be rude. Um, but I am positive, but less so. I feel like this is a middling Pixar effort, which of course is a very high compliment by any rational standard. Um, oh, this is so much better than say a Blue Sky movie. What's that about? I mean, most of them, yeah, absolutely, yeah. it is, yeah. But I do think it's not. 
wildly off par with, say, the first Shrek. And that, for me, was a bit of a problem. <gasps> oh. I know, I said it at the live pod. Okay. I'm saying it again, I'm Ooh. sorry. But I, I do think it's it's less of a home run than I want from Pixar movie. I did like it, however, and mm-hmm. I think it's got some wonderful moments. Yes. John? Yeah, I'm, I'm roughly the same as Helen. I don't think it's quite pure Pixar perfection, as I think Ben <laughs> put in his review, and it's since been slapped on every poster <laughs> up and down the land. It's, you know, impure Pixar perfection. It's it's uh yeah, I, I'm I think I'm four rather than five. Um I think I think for me I wanted it to be slightly funnier. There were moments Ooh. that I thought just the jokes just didn't quite land or maybe the script just needed a bit of tuning. Um but I thought it looked amazing. I thought it was very charming. I thought the characters and voice work were wonderful and it made me cry. Um, and and I think okay. that's something yeah. that Pixar still manages to do mm. better than probably anyone else is that sort of real <laughs> emotional pathos and um, sort of heartfelt storytelling. But like even the Good Dinosaur made me cry. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, that's yeah. just like a baseline. It's brutal. For Pixar. The opening of the Good Dinosaur oh, yeah, sure. is like really really hard going. But I'm just I saying like that's a Pixar that baseline. Yeah. That's not yeah, a I, Pixar. I know. think Good Dinosaur is underrated, frankly. Yeah, but that's that's another conversation. Yes, I wasn't well, actually, around. It's it's the worst performing Pixar apart from this and and. Mm. Of course, this, I think, has been hit by world events, so that's not a reflection of its quality mm-hmm. necessarily. But, um, but yeah, just, you know, making you cry, that's just like standard. I wasn't here for the uh, Pixar ranking episode we did. You hosted that, Helen. But if, if, yeah, if I had been, I would have been uh, agitating for the inclusion of The Good Dinosaur. Really? In your yeah. top 10? Yeah. That, wow. film, that wow. film destroyed me. Uh, in a way that I wasn't entirely expecting or prepared for because I, I watched when it came out on... Uh, DVD and we're just like oh, let's, just, let's just watch a good dinosaur I hear bad things but it's a Pixar so it can't be that bad and then like 90 minutes later my wife and I are like sodden messes <laughs> not not in a sex way uh, that hey. came later ladies and gentlemen hey. but uh, <laughs> with the emphasis heavily on came oh, oh Chris, come on it's a Pixar podcast on. you can't say things like that I heard you uh, came earlier that's, uh, that's, that's not, I, don't, I can't speak to that John uh, put it in the hands of my lawyer. But anyway, yes, uh, I love that film. I refuse to have film. that in my hands. Thank you. <laughs> this, <laughs> people are going, I pay every month for this. Uh, so this, I, I, I thought this was a, an equally pleasant surprise. Uh, interesting enough, it didn't move me the way that I thought it was going to going into it. Whereas Good Dinosaur came out of nowhere and went, feel, slap you in the face. This I was expecting, girding my loins, not literally, the entire time expecting to squirt a few. Again, tears. Uh, but... God. At the end, it didn't really happen for me. Well, for me, I found that there was a lot of genuinely really emotional stuff in there. I thought it was very, it felt like it had quite a light touch in those moments. Um, things like just the, those images of the, of the feet touching, the way that they communicate with, with, mm. the, with the half dad and that, <laughs> that dance sequence that it starts off really sort of like, it's quite goofy and silly and then it becomes really touching. If it, for mm. me, it had those... Mm. That was where the emotion came through. But we talk about a lot uh, about Pixar films making us cry and giving us these big sort of overwhelming feelings of cathartic sadness, as as you would find in Inside Out. It's very necessary emotion. The thing that struck me with this, I felt so elated by the time it ended. I thought it was so... It Wasn't really made me laugh. I mean, it was <laughs> Thank so, God that's over. <laughs> yeah. It was... Um, no, it just really... Like, all of the sort of... Weekend at Bernie's uh, sort of mm. half dad stuff really, really made me yes. laugh. Um, I thought it was pretty action packed for a Pixar movie. Yeah, um, I think that's one of the reasons that I didn't 100% chime with it, actually. Mm. That felt like 
something I would expect from, you know, a sort of illumination Mm-hmm. movie or something you know the, the sort Sorry, of just no, <laughs> not, like I you know I love a minion as much as the next person banana you know but it's like it, it's a different rhythm of storytelling and mm-hmm. this one felt like a different rhythm in that sense it's interesting because it is very much an original film like the good dinosaur I mean you, you mm-hmm. mentioned Toy Story 4 and Incredibles 2 both recently kind of treaded water a little bit were fine they delivered the, the laughs and they delivered the yucks and they delivered maybe a, you know a now and again a, a bit that would you know hit you right in the feels but it also felt a little bit by the numbers a little bit mundane really mm. I think Pixar's at its best Toy Story 2 aside and Toy Story 3 aside and um Maybe some other sequels I've forgotten as well. Uh, Cars 3, obviously. Uh, oh, my gosh. Pixar's at its best when it is delving into the world of the original. I mean, I've never seen a Pixar film where two mismatched characters go on a journey across. No, wait a second. That's every what Pixar the- film. Right? I mean, it kind of, yeah, it kind of yeah. is every Pixar film. And they, and they did become aware of that quite early to, yeah. the, to their credit and sort of started trying to mix up the formula a little bit. I think where... I, I agree with you, Chris, I think, which is very upsetting, obviously. But I think that the best Pixar movies are the ones that are completely wild ideas that you wouldn't traditionally be able to sell any studio on making and they're usually Andrew Stanton or Pete Doctor um, in recent years at least and mm. and that's kind of what I wanted to see maybe Lee Uncridge to a slightly lesser degree oh yeah 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 oh, like Coco is, is yeah. pretty impressive as well but I, I want that Pixar I want the Inside Out Pixar the Up Pixar the Wall-E Pixar and this is nowhere near that guy I mean the the, the idea of Half a dad is quite it's quite strange when you think about it. I remember seeing that first trailer and just being like, "Oh, it's 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 this is the premise of the film." <laughs> I mean, it is quite a strange premise, but then I guess I, it does. I wonder if it did settle into formula a little bit. The Shrek comparison is is quite interesting actually because if you look at what Shrek was back in what was it two thousand one, that mm. that was a very subversive film. I, I mean, that's yeah. that's taking this sort of Disney fantasy template and then flipping it on its head and making it quite sort of adult and having these very sort of grown up jokes in it. And this is kind of trying to do a similar thing. It's trying to be Pixar's Dungeons and Dragons movie. It's trying mm. to subvert these sort of fantasy tropes. But uh, and you get some a little taste of that along the way. But I I wonder if they could have done a bit more with it. Maybe I thought you know I loved the um, the trash unicorns. You know I thought that was a really funny idea. Mm-hmm. But then the the sort of pet dragon is just a pet dragon who's just kind of cute and small dragon breathes fire. Yeah. You know there's there's things yeah. like that where I wonder if the joke just could have. Used and, a bit of a punch up. And why did they like? Uh, this is. I'm going to be nerdy. What the hell? Why are they elves? There's no reason for them to be elves. There's nothing to do with them being elves. They could be humans. Like there would be usually humans in a fancy yeah. world like this. I personally, and I know I said this at the live show, but I may as well cut set my cards in Dublin, out here. In case you haven't listened to it, regular podcasts available now. Uh, yes, hello. I find this particular kind of fantasy world really reductive and boring. Um, I'm not a D and D player. I've never been a World of Warcraft player, and and so I am not particularly connected to this kind of I find slightly lazy kind of fantasy world I like the ones that do something different with magic or with the ideas and with some of the elements and sort of mix it up a bit but this whole sort of oh we've got elves we've got dragons we've got orcs I, I don't care you know and so I think I, I was like just aesthetically I was coming at it from a place of oh, I don't care I'm not, also not into that kind of Americana you know rock thing that Barley has going on so again I'm just a bit like oh I don't care about you but I did he was lovely I I loved it I really warmed to the brothers and that's why I don't think the film is bad but I just 
yeah. yeah. I'm going to bring in for rebuttal in a second, but it's interesting in the interview with, uh, with, with Dan Scanlon and Corey Ray that they talked about how this movie actually didn't start as a fantasy thing. Mm. And I'm fascinated by that. At I'm, what point did that, was yeah. it introduced? How did it spin off? And I'm not sure what it adds. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, just some well, colour? So I, I've, we both interviewed, I interviewed him for the magazine, Dan mm. Scanlon, and I think because the, 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 the initial sort of impulse was this idea of wanting to bring back your dad, right? Mm. Wanting to sort of speak to a dead dad again. And I guess that out of that, the fantasy element came, mm. like the, this idea that you could use magic to bring him back. Yeah, so, and that's really powerful. And, and maybe, you know, because he's, a, he's not a storyteller who knows the fantasy world as, as, as well as other people, perhaps there isn't as much of the, the fantasiness of it. And look, I am willing to concede, because you're right, there, there, is a, there are particular strains of fantasy and this happens not to be my jam. I realise it is a very popular strain of fantasy, but it's always just felt a bit reductive and American to me. <laughs> For me, that partly was the sort of twist on the world that uh, that sort of it is a fantasy world, but I haven't seen a fantasy world that basically has modern technology where right. magic exists, but everyone's kind of given up on it. That felt like a quite a Pixar-y, think outside the box mm. sort of idea to me. And yeah, it is interesting, like you were saying, that they, they didn't come to it from a place of fantasy. I think they mentioned in that interview there was an, a, a draft where they were humans and it was they were scientists. Yeah, right. Because it's not on Earth. Way. I mean, it's, it's made fairly clear this isn't on Earth. Mm. Yeah. So it's not Two like a, it's not like a cars thing where maybe you know the cars have had an uprising and killed and enslaved humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Coronavirus kills all the humans. And Coronavirus, the oh. more oh, like no. oh, there no, we no. go. Oh no, oh, too soon. No. Oh, too, too soon. I mean, like right now. But it's not like that at all. So uh, that's why I was thinking initially. But then, how do they have some of the same things that humans have? Does that just parallel way that... evolution? It's yeah, a, it's a it's an accepted theory in at least sci-fi. Even down to the same. Music notes of famous songs. Yes. Okay. How did that happen? I don't know, but it definitely did. I did enjoy some of the um, nerdy jokes. Yes. Not my favourite. I told you this already, Chris, but my favourite is actually the washing up liquid that the mum has in her kitchen. I don't know. I'm sure you all noticed this, but I'm I'm just going to tell you anyway. There is a washing up brand in the US called Dawn. So the washing up brand in this kitchen is Aurora. Which means dawn. Okay, it's right. Associated uh, with yeah. magic, sleeping beauty. That is very clever, Helen. My favourite background joke was at one point they're in a parking lot of a uh, single strip mall, and uh, one of the shops behind it is a frozen yogurt shop called Master Froyo, which I really <laughs> liked. But then it, it, it raises so many questions. Yeah, so well, there's, in a, there's this, Lord of the Rings in this universe. Yeah, in this parallel <laughs> evolved universe, this, mm-hmm. this may be even a completely different planet, hence the two moons. Mm. Tatooine. Is there is there Tolkien? Is there has have they got an equivalent of Lord of the Rings? Who's their anti circus? What's going on? <laughs> what is happening? Oh my goodness! Yeah, I don't know. It's all it's a listen. It's the sort of thing you shouldn't delve into too much. I keep I keep being minded, especially in doing things like this, of the Grant Morrison quote, which I'm paraphrasing wildly here, but about how when you're a kid, the Batmobile is the coolest fucking thing in the world, and you don't question it. You just go yes. That man who dresses up as a bat has a giant car, which also weirdly resembles a bat, and it's <laughs> awesome. And then when you're an adult, you start going, hang on a second, how does this work? Where'd you get the tires? 
Where'd you get the petrol? How does he get it in there? You know, is it taxed? Is it insured? What's happening? Uh, you know, so maybe as adults, we shouldn't, we're, we're, we're too prone to nitpicking this sort of thing. Too maybe we prone. should just go, too we should prone. just go, hey, you know, this is a 103 minutes of light Pixar fun and we should just go with it. And there's a yoga shop called Master Froyo and shut the fuck up. That's basically <laughs> what we should be doing. Um, let's focus on some of the, any other background gags you liked? Any other in-jokes that you liked? Yeah, I brought this one up in the interview, but I like there's a, a Centaur arcade game game called Prance Prance Revolution. <laughs> which That's great. incredible. Although how they play that without smashing the machine uh, with all four hooves. Yes. yes. That must be tricky. Maybe yes. they have um, shoes that they can switch on and off. Mm. Mm. Um, I, I also loved, I mean, this is not so much an in-joke, just a, a beautiful piece of design, the school logo of the dragon becoming the face of the dragon. Oh, yeah. And yes. what, what so the absolute best bit is where it realises it's been tricked and its eyebrows come up, come up, and then go down yeah. in front uh, to express annoyance. That is genius. That's absolutely yeah, genius. Yeah, the, the happy dragon face on the big dragon curse made me absolutely crack mm. up. That was yeah. brilliant. I thought I thought there were real lovely moments of invention. I think it's one of the best Pixar scripts in terms of planting seeds in the first act and paying them off in the third act. So, you know literally the, the 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 dragon coming to life and becoming the sort of bad guy in a movie that is strangely devoid of a villain mm. i thought mm. that was very interesting like you go back to most of the major pixar films and eventually they will have a villain whether it's sid in toy story or the ship's computer in wally you know there's there's all these there will be a bad guy a nemesis for them to fight against often an older male authority figure who is widely beloved and is then unveiled as being not as cuddly and nice yeah. as you thought they were i can't think of anyone who fits that that bill who fits that description can you no no, no of course not fine. um christopher Plummer. Up. Not Christopher Lumber in real life. He's a lovely No, he's fellow. a delightful but in Up, he's another one. But uh, did you think that was that was interesting, the idea that there's no bad guy in this movie, that this literally is just a quest? Uh, we spent more time with the brothers. Yeah, I like that. It's, yeah. you know, the, the goal is for them to, to sort of, yeah, complete the quest and make the magic thing happen. Mm. I like that the thrust of it was the was the adventure and was the emotional component of trying to see the dad. Yeah, and the um, relationship between them. The relationship between well. them growing. Yeah. So I, I think it didn't really, didn't necessarily need a sort of a, a villain per se, but then I really enjoyed when there was a big action climax at the end because I thought it was a really fun one and really mm. well done and full of kind of exciting moments and, and lots of gags as well. Mm. Yeah, and I thought the relationship between the two brothers was was probably the, the, the best thing in the mm. film, the yeah, film strength. Just like, it felt very honest, it felt very sweet, it was quite funny at times and then that sort of final twist where he realises that he's had this father figure his whole life was... I just thought really lovely mm. and I think that's something that felt very authentic to people who might have grown up without a parent that, yeah. that there are other parental figures in their lives that maybe they haven't uh, realised or they, they perhaps didn't appreciate at the time because you're a kid and you, mm. you know mm. you, you don't realise what's going on and you're, yeah. I think people often crave that sort of nuclear family without realising that it doesn't always have to be in that way and I think that's a really interesting um, and re really smart lesson and the kind yeah. of smart lesson that Pixar are very good at is like picking up on very, you know, clever th sort of themes, and and tying that just into the ethos of the film as a whole of of the value of of time of spending time yeah. Yeah. with the people that you love and and what you what you do with that time is important. I thought that was lovely. That the yeah. the, the quest itself was was what he was looking for all along. I thought that was mm. lovely. Yeah, yeah no, I, th I think that's absolutely right. Both of you, I think that's it's such a lovely relationship between the two of them, and mm. I. 
it was kind of a twist, really, for yeah. me at the end. I did not see that coming. And and it, it does still gut me that he didn't get his moment with his dad a little yeah, bit. But I, at the same time, you're right, Barley needed it more. I mean, I, w- were you disappointed? I was slightly disappointed that he really? didn't. That, yeah. I mean, I, I understood, like, from a sort of storytelling point of view, it made sense that he didn't meet his dad because, you know, he's he's had this realisation and... So it made more sense for him not to, but I st- I was still like, this is. I still wanted the whole, a moment. The whole at least film, a, he's he's been chasing you know, this. I don't know. At I, least the sort of Lady Hawk, you know, their fingers touches yeah. and fades away. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, if you haven't seen Lady Hawk, watch Lady. <laughs> watch Lady Hawk. I'm not kidding. It's great. I'm I'm really glad they didn't do that, and I, I'm I, I I think it's a really bold move. A not to do that, and B not to even show the conversation that mm. that Barley has with his dad when they do have it. That we see, we hear the laughter, we see them hug. Uh, because I, I was stealing myself at the, the the entire film, my parents are no longer with us, and so any film I go into, which I where I know it's going to be about a parental figure or the loss of a parental figure, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it could, it could be hard watches for me. You know, Up mm-hmm. was a really hard watch for me. Brave was a really hard watch for me, uh, and I was I was stealing myself for this to really hit me hard as well. And then it does a left turn. Maybe that's why I didn't provoke tears the way I was expecting although I thought it was really lovely when Ian realises that Barley as you say is the father figure but I just thought I was looking at it going this is such a lovely idea love, such a lovely moment to not give us the conversation that we as an audience have been playing in our head since since pretty much the beginning of the movie yeah. since half a dad appears you know you're playing this conversation you've, you've written it in your head so I think they know that it won't live up to whatever the conversation is in your head. It's not a conversation that you're imagining the characters having. It's a conversation I'm imagining myself having with my dad mm. or my mum and, you know, my wife was having with her mum. And so it's good, I think, that they don't give you that, that they allow yeah. your conversation to remain pure. And yeah, I think true. as well, for, for Ian, with the mere minutes or the mere seconds that they have, what 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 would that conversation have been? Whereas Bali, the value of Bali having had this at least initial relationship mm. with the mm. father and then getting some closure on that. Um, and it almost feels like Ian, to an extent, sacrifices his opportunity for his brother mm. because he loves his brother and, and he knows that his brother will get more out of that than him. He mm. would probably have a, a quick hello and a hug, but maybe that causes more, I don't know, upset than... Barley getting to have closure from that moment. Mm. And you're right. I, th- I think that from a, a storytelling perspective, I think that is a really brave decision for, from Pixar. And I think that is the kind of difference between Pixar mm. and the rest of the competition because that is the closure that the audience is craving. That's what everyone is expecting. Mm. That's what everyone wants. And to you, you could so easily spoon feed you that moment, but they don't. And it and could be so saccharine as well. Of course, it could be so. Yeah. Oh, Dad. Oh, hey, Ian. You yeah. know, I've, I've, I've missed you. But my God, what a young, inspiring boy you've grown. Uh, you know. But also, it's got so many. There's so many existential questions that are raised by this moment. Like, Dad, where have you been? What's it like? Is there an afterlife? You know. <laughs> and by sparing you this conversation, it yes, it probably chickens out of of trying to answer those big questions. But I'm I'm glad it didn't. No, it's fine because. Pete Doctor's going to answer those questions in Seoul. <laughs> <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, this has an Easter egg for us, as you've heard, yeah. uh, as Ben has discovered, as we've already put on the internet. Uh, but given that Seoul is on Earth and this is on a different but, planet, how's that work? Anyway. 
Uh, also, I feel like I spotted the Pizza Planet track for maybe the first time ever in my oh, life. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't spot it. I mean, it was just on the freeway, but I'm pretty sure I did see it, um, which I've never, ever spotted it without help in a Pixar movie really? before, apart from like in Toy Story where it was. Yes, in. there's a Pizza Planet. <laughs> <laughs> what about A113? Anyone spot that? Yes. No. I oh, did, okay. and I've forgotten where I spotted it, but I did. Okay. Oh, no, he calls it in. He calls it in. It's a code 113. Oh, really? Uh, he calls in code 113 for help. Okay. Uh, when I say he, I, of course, mean uh, Centaur. Step centaur man, centaur cop, horse cop. Main man. Main Cops man. Yes. <laughs> Which is what I called my boyfriend that time. That was great. He didn't uh, have a main though, just no, to be clear. He was from Maine. He was from Maine. He was from With Maine. an eye. Should, yes. Yeah. Okay. He had an eye. No. So he was a wait, cyclops. He was a cyclops. <laughs> <laughs> not a centaur. And not a, um, a cyclops in a single sex relationship. So... Uh, Unlike the one here. That's right. Yes. This is, so this yeah. is we should we should mention this. I mean, we've we've talked repeatedly about this is a throwaway line that Lena Waithe improvised apparently. Mm. Uh, talked about how her girlfriend's daughter keeps her awake at night, and so it's a huge huge deal in terms of these movies. But at the same time, it also feels a little bit like not enough. It's a little bit yeah. like that one line in you know Avengers Endgame. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. Joe, Joe Russo. Russo. Yeah, just you know. They're literally we've, we've, like one word and he's gay yeah. and that's it. We've ticked the box yeah. and that's fine. Do, yeah. you, do you know what it actually reminds me of? They used to, in Hollywood movies, when they had like people like Lena Horne under contract, um, Dorothy Dandridge, they would put them in their big studio musicals, but they'd put them in for one single number that could then be just chopped out when they were showing it in mm. in the Deep South, basically, so that, that, that people in you know, Jim Crow era America wouldn't be offended by the sight of my God. A black woman. Um, it feels a little bit like this with some of, of Disney's recent moves towards a more diverse selection because it really is blink and you'll miss yeah. the representation of LGBT characters. It's true. It's it's on the one hand, it's very easy to be cynical because it does feel like you know this is yeah. very. This is such a small. It, it's almost like you're not trying. Um, on the other hand, the film has been banned in some countries in the Middle East. Mm. Um, which makes you think, okay, well, that's, I guess that's, that's not nothing. Um, mm. And, you know, yeah. it, it's, it's also, it's sad to say, but it is a business decision to, to have, yeah. uh, a, you know, a, an LGBT character in a, in a family film that is, they're hoping to make hundreds of millions. It blows my mind to people get their looser shit about this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's 20 fucking 20. Yeah. There is a virus sweeping the planet <laughs> that might change the very fundamental fabric of life itself. Yeah. And you're getting your knickers in the twist because there's a character in a Pixar movie who is gay. It's like one word. It's a one mm. word yeah. thing. And yeah. It, oh, girlfriend and not boyfriend. She says. Jesus Christ. That, anyway. That's the thing to their credit. As small as it is and as blink as you and, and you'll miss it as it is to their credit. They haven't they haven't cut it out. And I yeah. think yeah. That, that is absolutely the, the right decision. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so that, that's uh, focusing on some of the, the key moments and the key, uh, key characters from the film. Because um, it is very much focused on Ian and Barley. Mm. Uh, Ian, of course, played by Tom Holland. And Barley, of course, played by Jack Black. Sorry, <laughs> Chris Pratt. I mean... It, this role was written for Jack Black, isn't it? <laughs> it's very even down to the van. It's very Jack Black in School of Rock. You expect yeah. him to turn is, the yeah. key and, and the Led Zeppelin. But then it's also quite. I mean, it is also quite Star Lordy, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite really. Andy Dwyer. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the exact halfway point between those two. I think so. It's also quite Chris Pratt. Um, so 
it feels like very good casting in both mm. both cases. I mean, Tom Holland is playing, you know, adorable child that you want to protect at all costs, <laughs> like he does. Um, I feel like that's his that's an area that he just has on lockdown. He's the Ben of Hollywood right now. Like, <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's that awkward scene where he tries to invite people to the party. Oh my god! I mean, that could have been taken from a Spider-Man movie almost, yeah. couldn't it? I mean, it's it is it's very Tom Holland. Yeah. yeah. Those characters don't come back in again. I, I do wonder if there was a little bit of surgery now and again mm. with this movie. Maybe he had a love interest that didn't quite work out. and mm. So they only pop up again at the at the very end of the movie. Maybe they decided that the quest was was where it was and maybe the, the heart of the movie lay in the bond between the two brothers. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that there's a, the, the, the uh, an entire subplot is predicated on Barley being a fuck-up. And it's interesting that they said mm. that as well. Literally in the movie, they go, Barley, you're a fuck-up, which is uh, <laughs> interesting for a Pixar movie, I thought. But, uh, but to their credit, they didn't cut out those F-bombs, which <laughs> I think was so absolutely the right decision. Yeah. It was just Tom Holland improvising F-bomb after F-bomb after F-bomb. He said, screw that Spider-Man image. I could say fuck with the best of them. Uh, but yes. he said fudge. Yes, <laughs> they dumped over fuck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no, they don't say that, but they do say screw up, which I yeah. was a little bit surprised about. I thought, whoa, that's whoa, that's daring for Pixar. I mean, I mean, the whole conceit of that scene where if he if he tells the lie, then the magic will go away, and that's him having yeah. to basically ad- admit his true at that point true feelings about his brother and what his brother's doing. That again, that felt like this is what Pixar do. They mm. they come up with these things that drill down to a character level that is part of the adventure. Mm. It's all part mm-hmm. of the storytelling, but it's it's revealing emotional truths and like slightly uncomfortable sort of moments as well that are going to cause friction between your two generally really likable lead characters. Yeah, I thought that was a really smart decision. Mm. Yeah, really yeah, really good. Yeah. And also I like that the mother was not irrelevant. Mm-hmm. She wasn't dead like she would be in a Disney movie. Um, uh, she wasn't a bitch or a moan. Um, she was, you know, a good mother and kind of supportive of both of them, you know, maybe not entirely aware of everything that was going on in her son's lives, as you wouldn't be if they're sort of early 20s and a teenager. Um, but, you know, there and present and helping and doing stuff and ha- having her own little story in the background, I like, thought that was great. No hesitation as well. It's not like the boys are missing what am I going to do where do I go she's just like you Manticore you're coming with me we're yeah. off and I really like the sort of propulsion of that of that mm. B plot every time it cut back to that plot I was always happy to go back to those characters and, and to that side of things I felt like they had a really nicely fleshed out sort of adventure themselves The uh, when they uh, go to the what is it the little lizard lady who's um, <laughs> yes. the, the sort of pawn shop yeah. scene it's really yeah. fun it's really funny she seemed like she was left over from Monsters Inc. Like she seemed like she was she was related to Steve Buscemi's character in Monsters mm, Inc. Didn't yes. she? Yes. Sorry. What or was no. her creature? Rango. She was like Rango. She was like a goblin. I think she was a goblin. I don't know if she was, but that's what she looked like. It's Tracy Ullman as Greklin. It was Tracy Ullman. Greklin's a goblin name. Come on. Yeah, yeah. it really is. Uh, I don't want to be racist, but the moment with the Manticore stabs her in the neck and <laughs> knocks her out destroyed my yeah. wife. Absolutely destroyed her. She was laughing for a good three minutes afterwards. Uh, missed some major plot stuff that happened afterwards, <laughs> but it's all good. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Corey. The Manticore yeah. as well. Thought she was a pretty cool character, and uh, but I really liked Colt Bronco. The Colt um, Bronco. Colt Bronco. Mel Rodriguez is Colt Bronco. He was fun. I mean, he got one of the best laughs right at the end when he uh, reveals his <laughs> incredible mane and yes. rides off <laughs> yeah. into the would. sunset. Yeah, you, of you course. would run. You would run wild if you were a centaur, wouldn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I'd be trying to figure out how to, you know, manage my six limbs. Are centaurs? <laughs> 
I mean, it's, insects. Yeah, I mean, come on. It, it was people. funny that he didn't seem to have a specially adapted car. He just had a car that <laughs> was really awkward to get out of every time. Like there was no like centaur car. He was just like smashing into things constantly. That's a good point. Um, one of my favorite characters isn't a character at all. It's the fan. The fan. Guinevere. Guinevere. Guinevere, whose heroic, noble self-sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, not a dry was, eye in a house. That was really, that was really moving. I Eject- felt for mm. the fan. I yeah. really did. I yeah. think that was the moment when I, I was sitting there actively thinking, "Oh, I really love this film. I really love this film because that is a very, it's like a very necessary plot beat. It's about, I don't know, between halfway and two thirds of the way through. That is the point you'd have a character make the noble sacrifice, like Qui Gon, and then yeah. the visual." <laughs> The visual gag of the of the tire <laughs> bursting and it's sort of galloping along, yeah. And then the actual like weird emotion underneath it of it did feel weirdly sad. And I, I was yeah. like, why do I feel this emotion for this yeah. van? That's that's the Pixar touch. That is what Pixar do. Mm-hmm. They'll make you feel um, genuine emotions about an inanimate object. Mm. Um, and the combination of those things, I was sort of laughing and felt the bittersweetness at the same time. Mm. I was like, ah. Oh. Because Barley infests so much in the fan. Yeah. So much of his personality is built up into that fan as well. Did you notice as well, as he's sending the van off into the final ascent, he gives the van a little slap on the ass <laughs> as if yeah. it was a horse? <laughs> Which, of course, is really Pegasus, nice touch. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fly. Fly Guinevere one more time. Yeah, really, really like that. I also really liked the moment where um, Barley becomes uber small. And I thought, (laughs) this is really interesting. This is what set the the fantasy realm allows them to do. By playing with magic, they're, they're, they're able to have a lot of fun with the half a dad. Uh, mm. Just the very visuals of that made me laugh every single mm-hmm. time it did something. Every oh. time it was kind of, you know, we get a Bernie scene in the background, it just, I cracked up. Uh, but also, the, yeah, when Barley when Barley goes to uh, Little Barley, uh, that's just hilarious. <laughs> Super good. Yeah, the, yeah. All, all of the, the dad stuff, the, the, the sort of dad sort of cockily leaning out of the window and, the, <laughs> oh, and yeah. sort of starting the fight with the fairies and stuff. <laughs> it's amazing. <Yes. laughs> it's so good. And that's like credit to the animators who really imbue it with like actual character traits despite mm. having no face or <laughs> arms or anything to like you know you're getting a real sense of character just from a pair of legs yeah. and that's like that's god level animating and, isn't and, it? and the physicality of like how precise those movements have to be for that physical comedy to work yeah. when all of those physical movements are being done mm. by animators is is amazing yeah that's just like any day ending in y for an animator yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know. uh, geniuses Dan isn't here, so Dan Jolin can't comment on the board game uh, elements of this movie. Mm. But I know he was very excited that a gelatinous cube showed up yes. in a big screen film, which is apparently a great big thing for role players. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Anything. Really? I, I, I play board games occasionally, but not not the heavy duty hardcore shit that he's into. Yeah, I, w- I went to see this with uh, a dungeon master. Um, and he informs wow, me that... Wow, you admitted it. <laughs> <laughs> he, apparently the gelatinous cube is a huge deal in classic Dungeons & Dragons lore. It's like a ridiculous thing that envelops... I mean, it is... It's is, a gelatinous it cube. It is what it yeah. is in, yeah. the, in the movie, yeah. But uh, I, they had to license that from uh, the D&D... That's hilarious. Like people. Oh. And they also said, as they said in the interview that you've already heard, but um, they had to make so many different types of jelly to work out how jelly looks like when you blow oh, it up. really? So they made loads of different types of jelly of d- different viscosity um, so that they could accurately 
uh, sort of animate the way that light shines through a gelatinous cube. Oh, I think they make this stuff up sometimes. <laughs> I mean, the whole sort of, oh, we're, we're setting this film in a gourmet restaurant in Paris. Oh, no, I guess we're going to have to go to the best restaurants in the world and eat there. They made an actual I mean, restaurant with rat chefs. It was ho- horrible. I mean, you know, yeah, that, that one didn't work out so well. But they went and did their research first and... I just wonder sometimes, I just, I feel like it's a matter of time until some Pixar movie is set in like, you know, on a gorgeous, in a very, very fancy resort in Hawaii or something (laughs) uh, at a convention of supermodels. Like, it's going to happen. They're going to figure out a way to make that happen. So let's have some very, very quick questions from listeners who sent in stuff. They've slid into my DMs like a gelatinous cube. Uh, can gelatinous cubes slide? Yes, they can. Yeah, that's about all they can do. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Slide. At 4ND asks, aside from a Cheeto or a what's it would be the equivalent over here, I guess, in this country, uh, what would be another great snack to make huge and eat whilst sailing down a river on it? I almost instinctively said marshmallow and then I remembered that video of the raccoon dropping the marshmallow into the water and it immediately dissolves and it's completely distraught because it doesn't know what's happened. One minute it's holding a marshmallow (laughs) and then the next it's holding nothing and it doesn't know what's Uh, happened. This is like one time I saw a woman throwing snowballs for her dog to catch and her dog caught them and then he had nothing. And he was really confused. Such a shame. Yeah, for a dog. I I mean, I was confused that the, the cheeto I thought would take on water. I mean, it seems to be a very instant boat. No, none, too, of your, none of your physics here. I'm, physics. I'm, I'm reminded of the Grant Morrison quotes uh, okay. <laughs> about the Batmobile. Right. Just, just let it go, John. Yeah, let yeah, it go. Yeah. Let, yeah. That's the wrong studio. Oh, that's wrong. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> damn it. Uh, a Pringle would make a good boat. Oh, yeah, it's got a good, it would. No, it's got it gives a bit down on two sides. Oh, so if you put the ends up yeah, and then was, the side, but then you might yeah. slide down the sides. But there's a natural yeah, there's a, there's barrier, a sort of isn't it? To but you've got it, no keel to keep you even in the water. Or maybe it's a catamaran, I suppose. Equally, a Dorito would also I was thinking work. a Dorito, but it might Dorito, be because it's the yeah. shape of a sail. Yeah. Maybe if you get some guacamole for like sort of to sort of pad it out, just to harden. Mm. I don't what know. a monster munch. <laughs> <laughs> then you've got the legs to lean on. Yes, so that, each of you works. has your own that sort works. of like leg this thing. This is good, yeah. You can yeah. like use it like a, almost like a little life raft yeah. just yeah. around exactly. you. Uh, we're we're f- focusing very much on crisps and snacks here at the moment. Or do we think that mm. a chocolate would be too dense that it would it would sink, it'd sink into the water? It sink. Yeah. Yeah. Celery like a, steak, though, if you want to be healthy about it. Sure. Maybe like a whisper? You want? A whisper bar? A Malteser. Might float. A Malteser. No, Malteser. I mean, the Malteser's, Malteser's aren't They're light. lighter. They are light. Um, there you yeah, go. Or, yeah. or a minstrel, because that doesn't melt. No, no, I don't think so. Why not? Because the, the, all the colour in the, in the outer sh- uh, sugar shell would get dissolved by the water. All the colour would get dissolved, but, no, but then the, the, sugar the shell, shell itself would, no, would be intact. Gradually, it, would gradually, it gradually will melt away, I think. I just think it'd be messy. That's All what right. I'm saying. All right, Mythbusters, you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> what about biscuits? A Kit Kat? Well, right now. Oh, yes, yeah, I'd love one. A Kit Kat. No, a Kit Kat would be, I don't know. Too heavy? Too heavy. But it is wafer inside. It is wafer inside. Oh, I'm hungry now. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to another question. At Cantona's Ghost, we've kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, but what's your favourite reference from onwards? For me, it's a coin flip between the shop called The Sword and the Scone. Scone. Sort of a scone. Sort I pronounce a scone, scone, you see. Ah, yeah. No, but it, it's a scone. It works on two levels then. It does, doesn't yeah. it? The sword and the scone. Uh, or the fact that second breakfast is an option in the fast food restaurant. Oh, Tricky. that's inspired. Oh, I like that a lot. <laughs> but again, Tolkien. We're like, we're, yeah. Who is uh, there Tolkien? I didn't pick up on that joke. 
first time around. Yeah, I get it. I yeah, get, second, yeah break, get it. Uh, second breakfast. Second breakfast. That's good. Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Second breakfast. Uh, so, anything else you spotted? Anything else you wanted to talk about there, or are you are you just happy with uh, with what we've said already? Yeah, pretty much. I really right. like sword and the scone though, because like if you did, it should have been the scone, the sword of scone that he drew the sword out of, because then he'd be king of the whole of GB and not just England. <laughs> If we're talking King Arthur here. Oh, we were, right? That was yes. what we were talking Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, what did we think of the dad's message on tape? I have to say, I was, I, I, did, I did wonder why they had cast Chris Pratt in this story of a, a man-child who clings to the memory of a dead parent, which is kept alive in the form of a, of a cassette <laughs> of tape. Of a cassette tape, yeah. yeah. I wonder why they thought of Chris Pratt for that. <laughs> yeah, and some 80s music as well, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I thought that was lovely. I, I, I kind of, I always like those little kind of you know, moments of people connecting with old TV or mm. tapes like this, well, answering I- machine messages, all that kind of stuff. The idea that Ian had memorised it so much that he yeah. was able to have that conversation mm. with his with his dad. And um, that that's where the film sprang from. I didn't actually talk to Dan Scanlon about this because he's mentioned it in quite a few interviews, but um, he found a tape that had his dad's voice on it and it just said hello and goodbye. Um, and so that's where that scene sort of originated from. That's a very personal part of, of his story because he was very, very young. I think he was one when his dad passed away, oh, so he goodness. doesn't really have any memory of his own dad. Um, but when he was a teenager, somebody found this tape that, that had his dad's voice on it. So I thought that was... I think that's the other thing with the Pixar touch, that it's it's a huge Disney movie. It's a big, colourful, splashy, fancy quest adventure. Mm. But it's a really personal story. It's yeah. a very, very personal, emotional story wrapped up in all this other fun stuff and the way that they get these things in that um that are so true whether it's just generally emotionally true or true to his particular story i thought that was um beautiful yeah i felt really emotional when i found that out afterwards i thought that was just a lovely Mm. sort of lovely bittersweet kind of idea yeah and that scene is just written so well i think it's just so such a clever touch Last one, I think, is from at Rob Matt YC or Rob Rob Matty C. Probably, uh, do you feel like the world of Onward and the art style felt a bit more like DreamWorks rather than the typical Pixar film we normally get? Well, as I've said, I, I kind of do actually. I think that's, I think that's a function of of choosing to represent the world that they, in the way that they did this this mix of kind of modern US and fantasy trope. And I think there probably were some other ways that they could maybe have done it. Um, but, I mean, so much of it is very nice that I'm not going to harp on about that too much, I promise. Um, but, yeah, I just I just, um, I just like my fancy worlds a little bit more elegant or mm-hmm. something, I think. And this one wasn't for me. <laughs> for, uh, yeah. For me, it felt less sort of dreamworksy and more modern disney-ish it felt very zootropolis mm. for me yeah um in that sense rather than it, obviously it was the sort of curvy shapes and things that you do associate with with dreamworks but it felt it had a more of a playfulness to it that felt a bit more like sort of yeah zootropolis era disney for me um, but there were points when i was thinking about the film and overall of, of what it does well and what it does interestingly i thought dreamworks would make if DreamWorks were doing that film, it would be so different. It would it would probably lack a lot of the things that I loved about it. Mm. Um, and I think you feel the Pixar touch through so much uh, of what it does on a on a yeah character and story level. Um, maybe not as much on a visual level compared to um, recently. Even things like like Coco is just astonishingly oh, yeah. like beautiful. Even by Pixar standards, yeah. it's, it's crazy good to look at. This doesn't quite have that, but. Um, 
but yeah, it, I, it, I, it, I wasn't really struck by DreamWorks, you know, so I have to say. But I mean, like if you think about DreamWorks less as Shrek and more as How to Train Your Dragon, like there mm. is a real texture yeah, and a real quality to that that I don't think this manages most of the time. I don't think it has the elegance even of How to Train Your Dragon um, most of the time. And again, the emotion is all there and, you know, there are some great, great moments, but it's, yeah, it's just not mm. top Pixar for me. Top 10? This is the 22nd Pixar movie. I've no. just I've just checked. No, you don't think so? No, not, not top 10? Okay. It would be bottom end of my personal top 10. Okay. Yeah, it's just outside mine, I think. I think they've... It, it's just because Pixar have done... In any other film studio, this would have been top 10, I think, because Pixar have so many excellent films. I just don't think it quite makes it. It's upper... Upper middle <laughs> tier <laughs> for me. I think it's uh, number 10 for me. There you go. Oh my God. <laughs> Sitting on the fence. Just behind the good dinosaur. And uh, other wild opinions are available. Yeah. <laughs> Have uh, you been eating that fermented fruit that they eat in the good dinosaur? <laughs> uh, just very, very quickly, what do we make of the Simpsons short that uh, prefigures this? Didn't see it. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. They did not show it in yeah. my press screening. Me either, ah, sorry. Yeah. Either of my press screenings. I paid good money to see this. Good save, Helen. Uh, I paid good money to see this and uh, it was very good. So it's a uh, young Maggie and she meets uh, a young uh, fellow baby and they fall in love and she uh, fixates really, really dangerously, obsessively uh, about him and then they, they get together on a train and uh, it's quite... What, in a like not, north by northwest sort of way? Well... No, but it's very pure, their love. Is it but the baby with one eyebrow? Maggie's nemesis? No, it's, it's a brand new baby we ain't seen oh, before. Okay. Oh. And Homer's in it, but there's no, there's no dialogue. It's a silent Simpsons oh. short. That sounds fun. Yeah, it is fun. Go check it out. I can't remember what it's called. But uh, what do you expect from these things? Research? You'd think you'd have learned by now. Anyway, that is it for our Onward Spoiler Special podcast. Uh, the next Spoiler Special podcast... Um, well, it's getting interesting, isn't it? Because it was meant to be A Quiet Place Part 2, but obviously that's no longer happening. And uh, I've just read, as we were recording this, that Fast and Furious 9 has moved back a year. I know. What? Justice what? for Han. Yeah. No. Oh my God, really? It is Magnaplane. It is <laughs> Magnaplane. Oh you can't God. take away. Magnaplane, come back oh to me. Don't God. leave now me. Corona, you motherfucker. Now it's a crisis, guys. <laughs> okay, everyone panic. <laughs> now oh now this time it's personal. <laughs> <laughs> when they said crack open a Corona with the boys, they didn't mean that kind. Unbelievable. Oh my wow. God, you can't just casually drop that information. What? I didn't casually, I built up to it. Oh. Yeah, literally. yeah, I'm sorry, I've been sitting on it half the podcast. Because I, I saw the I saw the tweet and it was going, it's moved back to April. I was like, it was opening in April, wasn't it? It was opening in maybe, so it's only moved back a couple of weeks. I mean, in 2021, hang on, this is 2020. Oh. So yeah, 2021. Uh, and after that, our next Sporter Special, after the Quiet Place Part 2 Sporter Special, our next Sporter Special, um, uh, well, I, uh, I think that might be moving back as well. It was meant to be no time to die that is definitely moved back and then it was so anyway just keep them peeled <laughs> just keep them peeled we'll have another spoiler special one day we will do retro spoiler specials in the absence of any new movies and it looks like at least for the next few weeks there will be uh, uh, an absence of any new movies it's going to like that Michelin Web sketch isn't it just remain indoors remain indoors yes. I mean I've been saying for some time that they should stop making movies so I can get caught up uh, but I didn't expect them to take me seriously <laughs> I can't help but feel a little responsible. But anyway, on that note, on that bombshell, that is it. Uh, it is goodbye from Ben Travis. Goodbye. It is goodbye from John Nugent. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. 
and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get a lovely scoop from Master Froyo. Second breakfast, anybody? Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.